Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us here at another Next Level Brands Podcast. Our podcast today is brought to you by kitchentoshelf.com. Kitchen to Shelf is the educational arm of the Next Level Brand CPG community and a provider of online and in-person courses and workshops for CPG entrepreneurs at all stages of growth. Whether you're an early stage startup, a local growing business, or a regional powerhouse, kitchentoshelf.com can help you scale your business at Amazon, in food service, or at retail. That's kitchen, the number two shelf.com, what you need to know to grow. Hi, I'm Steve Clear, and I'd like to welcome to the show today, Wade Brooks, the CEO of Live Foods. Live Foods was founded in 2012 and develops manufacturers that sells Live Bars, USDA certified organic, superfood, and nutritional bars. Wade has 25 years of top management experience. His first was founded while in college and became the first Apple computer value-added retailer in the U.S. He has a BS and MBA from Willamette University and executive education and management training from Harvard Business School. He also founded the world's first university angel investment fund, and Inc. Magazine has ranked his entrepreneurship class in the top 10 in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Wade. Hello. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for, you know, thanks for joining us, taking the time today. I, I, it's, I was really looking forward to, to getting a couple of different perspectives. But let me, let me start out by asking um, about how you chose food first and then um, live bar second and in, in being in the bar category. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really interesting question because my background uh, the companies that I've run in the past were all technology companies, uh, and so so it's it's a vastly different marketplace. I mean, it it's a uh, yeah, it's complicated. It's different. There's definitely a learning curve. Um, you know, I ran my th- these companies. I then uh, retired pretty young, like at 35, and then I um, you know was a professor for 10 years teaching entrepreneurship and venture investing, uh, and then. I went to New Zealand and was teaching early stage finance for kind of visiting professor for six months. When I got back, a number of uh, the people who had invested my other companies and knew me uh, wanted to do a search fund where they basically fund you to go find a company to run. Uh, So we looked around for a long time. I uh, was an advisor to this company and I took the bars all over the world, talked to lots of people, had people try them. They're significantly different than other bars. They're a baked bar. They're crunchy and chewy. They have, I mean, it's a, for what it is, which is this crazy superfood, amazing ingredients, it also tastes good. And so the feedback I got from everybody was great. And I said, I think that this is what we should do. Uh, so I brought in some money and started doing this and hired some of my former students and brought in some other folks. Uh, and you know, we had a really steep learning curve on the CPG side. Uh, <laughs> like I told people, it's not intellectually difficult uh, to understand how it works because you know, you're making food. Um, but it is complicated. The distribution channel is complicated. Um, the way that financially it works is difficult uh, because you don't always have control over the money. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. So I see it a little bit like the music industry, which is you know you have the the producers and the studios have control over the money, and they kind of pay you when they're going to pay you, and they say you know you ship product to distributors, and they don't always pay you on time or they don't always pay you for the full amount or they want all of their promotional stuff out of it. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a complex web. And, and, and there is, yeah, it, uh, so much, so much truth to that. There is uh, um, in, in a, uh, a blog, actually in a webinar that I do, there's the, if the five reasons that CPG startups fail, uh, like number three is lack of industry knowledge. 
is not not understanding that you know you start out in the food business and you're really excited about it and a lot of us are are kind of foodies but you quickly go into the logistics business <laughs> and yes. the guys yeah. that you have to deal with think like supply chain management not like oh this is the next brand that's going to change the way we eat yeah uh that and you have to have um your margins have to be right i think a lot of people don't see all of the people that are on the rent chain so between the uh, promotions, the temporary price reductions, uh, the, you know, every promotion that you put on comes out of your pocket and that's at a distributor level and at a retail level. And if you just think I'm making a product for X and I'm selling it for Y and I make all that money, that's not what happens. Right. So yeah. you yeah. have to plan all that stuff out. Yeah. It's almost the more distribution I get, the less money I make, um, at, at least per bar. All right. Um, right. Something yep. to that. So but so you were, I mean, originally you were looking at this as more or less a f trying to find a financial, a viable brand, but a financial, financially viable, not looking for something in the better for you space. Uh, yeah. So I was looking for a company that would make sense for me, for investors to grow, build and take national. And then uh, looked at this company. Um, you know, did talk to lots and lots of people about it and then decided that this is what we wanted to do. Now, in part, so that's not, it's not just from a business perspective. It was the whole story. Uh, you know, the company was founded in 2012. I came in in 2018. It was founded by a nutritionist. Uh, her husband had, you know, all kinds of allergy issues and she couldn't find good, literally went down the bar aisle. She helps people shop, couldn't find any real good bars. It's mostly candy bars disguised as nutrition bars. Right. And so that whole story and background, and she made these, she didn't want to be in the bar business, but then people started buying them and really liking them. And she had to make more and more and more. Um, and, you know, it was a very small local brand uh, that I thought with that background story, those people are still part of the company. Um, you know, our founder, Jan, that we can really grow this thing. Uh, and it was the, the right product at the right time. Our, you know, the market is going towards organic and the market is going towards sustainability, but we were always those things. So instead of us chasing the market, the market is coming to us. Right. Uh, we have a home compostable wrapper. Um, as far as I know, we're the only guys that do that. Um, we have, you know, all organic ingredients, superfood ingredients, immunity boosting ingredients. Uh, and that's, you know, people really want those things now. But, you know, in 2012, that wasn't a thing. Not like it is now anyway. No. No, no, certainly more emphasis on and, and probably um, more emphasis after the pandemic or, you know, mid pandemic. For some of it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the pandemic was weird because that's all emerging brands kind of got crushed during the pandemic. Um, we actually have been growing, growing quite a bit. But, you know, if you can't sample in stores, you can't do demos and hand out product and all of them, all of the space, the advertising, you know, it's a zero sum game and the advertising amount of attention people have. Right. And it's filled up with the pandemic stuff and with the Trump stuff. And that was taking up all of the Twitter sphere. Um, it's just really hard to get recognized and known. And then you can't go to stores either. Uh, so we had to come up with alternative ways to, to do marketing. Fortunately, that stuff is coming back now. So we're doing a bunch. Of, we have, gosh, a couple hundred demos in the next month scheduled next month, in yeah. stores. Excellent. So what, what did you guys do as a, as a pivot in your marketing? Yeah. So, um, I, well, we, we used a bunch of different firms. And I've now just like in the last month, I've hired six people in marketing um, on the, the social side um, and events and all of those things, because that stuff is coming back. 
Right. Um, but we need to get bars into people's hands. Our bars taste so much differently that if someone tastes a bar, they'll buy a bar. I mean, we'll sell as many in a, in a three hour demo, we'll sell 80 to hundred bars. Um, so it has a huge effect when someone tries it. So one of the things we did was we've been uh, now went out in 70, 75,000 bars and subscription boxes so that we can get the bars into people's hands. Uh, that's the most direct way. The advantage there too is it costs more money to mail a bar than it costs to make a bar. And so right. if we can use somebody else's distribution channel and their network uh, and they're buying the bars from us um, you know, at a discount, then that's, that's a great way to do it. So that's one of the things that we've done. Um, we're actually doing some kind of, uh, what would you call it? Alternative marketing or guerrilla marketing where we're going out to trailheads. Uh, we're in Oregon, so we have a lot of people oh, who sure. hike and camp. Yep. Uh, so we're, you know, setting up, um, have some college students out there setting up tables and handing out bars and asking people, you know, to tag us and do stories and <laughs> yep. all those kinds of things. Um, so, and then, uh, so, but now again, you know, I'd rather take all of our money basically and do demos. Um, but that's a hard, you know, it's a hard thing to do. It's expensive. It's time consuming. Um, but that's yeah. our focus. Yeah. And it, it, it has been, it has been a real challenge. It's also been a challenge from the buyer perspective, if you're trying to increase your distribution, because it, I mean, at least you don't have a preparation issue, right? Where, you know, if I got a, a frozen good or something, I got to bake sure. or mix. If the buyer, even though you're doing it remotely, if the buyer doesn't do it right, or God forbid they have a microwave instead of a conventional oven or whatever at the headquarters um, or in their house, um, you know, it doesn't always come out right, but at least you could deliver the actual product is going to taste like what the, the buyer wants it to taste like. stuff. So did you guys do anything special for like buyer presentations and stuff when you, you couldn't see them in person? Uh, we, yeah, sure. We would send them the bars. Um, although a lot of people weren't taking samples and also people weren't at home or sorry, weren't in the office, they were at home. Oh, and okay. so it was hard to get them the bars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's a challenge, but you, you know, you work through it. Like I said, we've actually had, we've grown quite a bit during the pandemic, but most of the other bar, almost all the other bars, I just looked at the spin state today are all down, down significantly, like 40%. Um, when you're a small company and you're growing, those kinds of things don't affect you that much because you're basically always in a recession when you're a startup. Right. Uh, but for, let's say a big company like uh, Cliff Bar or Kind Bar to have numbers drop way down, you know, those are real sales numbers that are supporting your sales infrastructure and your business. That has yeah. a huge effect on you. Um, yeah. yeah. It, so, it, uh, and it, it, yeah. And it was, uh, as, as it happens, uh, Cliff Bar was my client for quite a while and during 2008. And so, um, you know, yeah, it, it took a, it took a heck of a dive. And, and what was sort of ironic about that was that, uh, you know, at the same time, one of my other clients was um, Purina Pet Foods, the Nestle brand, and they didn't, the needle never stopped going during the recession. Sure. Just didn't. Yeah. Like, so, okay. So you're cutting back on your healthier foods for your family, but the cat and the dog are doing just fine. It's going to be okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's the crazy data, right? Which is in times like these, what happens is people turn to chocolate, chocolate yeah. and candy snacks went through the roof. Alcohol, yeah. tobacco, and cannabis went through the roof. Yep. Right. And but everybody, but it's a pandemic, and you would think that everybody would be like immunoboosting. Let's do all this, and that's you know there was some of that happened on the, in the vitamin space. Right. But mostly it didn't go to healthy eating. Um, we see that coming back. Yeah. Uh, but 
Yeah. Because um, at least maybe there's more now, a, a little bit more of the label reading or a little bit more concern about what I'm putting in my body. Health in general, immunity, of course, is is huge. Um, but I, I remember, you know, walking into an Albertsons when the pandemic buying was was really panic buying was really going on. And I thought, you know, only in America would the paper shelf, the paper aisle be basically empty. And yet the protein aisle, whether frozen or fresh meat, fish, you know, whatever is overflowing. It's like, okay, folks, you know, <laughs> this is this is a really weird choice you're making here because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but you you want to make sure that you've got, you know, you can make sure you've got toilet paper before you have, uh, before you have any protein. So, yeah, I think it's very similar to what would happen in a recession or a depression, I would think. Um, those, uh, those are the same kind of things. Yeah, in in the recession, it was much the same thing. It, it, yeah, the the of, of the IRI and spins data at, at that point, so 2008 to two you know, 2010, um, you know, pet food is, pet food and supplies didn't do anything. Confection was, was up. Um, and actually most luxury stuff during that time, which you would consider the really oddball, uh, truffles and, uh, and stuff, uh, were, yeah, we're, we're basically doing right. fine as, as well as also upscale health and beauty care products. Right. Because pe- people want things when things are going poorly, uh, economically, they yeah. want things to make themselves feel better. Yeah. And, and on so the other on the they, other hand, boxed potatoes also through the roof. Right. So <laughs> just those sure. things. Um, wait, let me ask you, because it's sort of a, sort of a unique position. Um, you, you know, the background and stuff in in academia, um, mm-hmm. you're teaching, you know, teaching stuff, entrepreneurship, business building, whatever else. So how does that translate when you actually, you know, work with a company that you're going to grow? What's, what's the differences and similarity? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, entrepreneurship, some people used to think that you can't teach entrepreneurship. That's definitely not true. They used to think the same thing with leadership, that you can't teach leadership. That's not true. Um, but that, that was the prevailing wisdom years and years ago. Um, so the difference about teaching something like entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is very much like Kung Fu, uh, which is <laughs> you can read every book in the world on Kung Fu if you want. Right. right, and you can think that you'll know something, and the minute that you step out and you hit a bag, you're going to break your wrist if you hit it as hard as you can because you don't know. You have to actually practice it in the real world. And so, when I was teaching entrepreneurship, that's a major component of it. Some schools don't like that; they don't think that it's um, that th- that kind of practical stuff is academic. Um, but I would have, you know, I taught a whole bunch of of classes at, uh, at Willamette University's business school. Um, and I would have my students, they had to go out and interview entrepreneurs and they had to interview them in a real way. Like, you know, how did you get your first client? You, do you have a business partner? Was that a good relationship? Um, you know, all the real practical, like, how do you manage your inventory? How did you get your first investment? Uh, who did you talk to first? How many people did you talk to before that happened? Um, those kinds of things. I had a class where people had to literally start a company. And if they got to an arm's length transaction of revenue, they would get an A. And that seems like an easy thing to do, but it's really not because <laughs> no, you have to, no. yeah, I mean, you have to build it. You have to go create, you have to incorporate it or whatever you're going to do. You know, you have to build your product. Um, and it's, there's a huge difference between someone saying, yeah, I'll pay you 10 bucks for it. And then them actually giving you $10 when you have the product, right? Because right. they're not really coming up with the money. And, um, and then you have to have all the rest of the support things to, to sell something. Um, you have to have the website or the back end, the customer service. Um, at any rate, it, you know, it was okay in that class. If somebody determined they weren't an entrepreneur, 
that's not that's a good thing to know early on that that's just not <laughs> the person you are and, and you're not going to yeah yeah you mortgage your house yes yeah. i mean i see it a lot in in big companies so people who work you know here where nike is headquartered um you'll see you know executives leave and then say i'm going to go start a company and then you know their very first thing is well i need three assistants and you know i want this in marketing and you're like yeah okay that's just probably not you shouldn't be spending your life savings doing this that's just not the way entrepreneurship works um it's a lot of trial and error um there's an effectuation method if you go to effectuation.org that talks a lot about how you should do these things the process of it but in general it's repetitively talking to people with resources getting their feedback making changes based upon the resources that you find making adjustments going back to them um, or pivoting to do different things where you have real traction and you you only figure that method out by going and trying and doing it um, you can read about it but it's a different thing to do it in, in real life yeah I, I think it's it's um yeah it's, it's one of those things that you have to uh, um, the experience is so much a part of it um, and, and you can go through all of all of the, the theory and and again it's great to read things about entrepreneur and read things by entrepreneurs or their ghost writers, you know. Um, but it's uh, another thing to experience it, you know, experience it for yourself for sure. Um, but the um, thing I was wondering in that though is um, there are people who are, you almost look at them and think they're born entrepreneurs. And then there's people who kind of become entrepreneurs. But I think in the tech space, and I'm just going to go back sort of the, the buckets of people who, of the myriad of shows that I've done with people who've started food and beverage companies, there's a bunch of them that came from tech, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they either, there's kind of two, two ways. One was sort of a, a, a burnout or a realization that if I'm going to work this hard and do this much, I want to do it for my own. So that's kind of the, you know, right, the attitude entrepreneur, if you will. And then there were all the ones whose they or someone very close to them had an issue with diet or something else. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they, I have to problem, my problem solver, I have to solve the problem. So I sure. created this drink and, and, and lo and behold, you know, um, it, uh, you know, works that way. And it was, it's really fun because as you were mentioning, it's a whole different type of world from tech startup to CPG startup. And, um, you know, not only capital intensity, but, um, but it was interesting for me, at least how some of those people from tech brought over some of the stuff that maybe we hadn't thought about before. So I had a guy who was, was talking to him and interviewing him and, and I, we were talking about, we got to, down to cost of goods and, and how volume you know, and scale can reduce cost of goods. And uh, he said, yeah, I haven't looked a whole bunch into that. He said, I'm really more interested in getting more investors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, okay. And then I thought, oh yeah, because you're used to beta testing it. You're gonna, you're gonna test it at the price that it's gonna be when you're at scale, because that's how you right. see how you fit in the market. Well, you, you can't do that with, you know, a green smoothie drink because, you know, well, you can, as long as you have investors who believe in you. So maybe that's you have to have a lot of money to do that. Yeah. Yep. You got to have a lot of money to do that and whatever. But interesting that in, in your experience also, you went sort of backwards, which is you had the money together first and then went looking for the product. That must've been fun. Well, it, it was certainly interesting. I mean, it's hard to find good products. Um, it's hard to find good companies. Yeah. Um, and you have to have them that, that are going to scale. And, and I don't want to dig too deep into this, but you know, there, there are six characteristics that, and the first three characteristics are, um, you know, a company that's a viable, uh, lifestyle business. And the second three characteristics are things that make it an investable business. So 
feasible, reachable, valuable. Those, if they have those three things that can be, you know, a good lifestyle business. And then it has to be scalable, durable, and sellable to have investors. It's a more yeah. robust company. So feasible, can you do it? Are you the person to do it? Do you understand what it is? Do you have some background in it? Know it. Reachable, can you get to the customers? Uh, you know, if you're selling like a high-end, you know, fancy watches, is, do you have access to those people? Because it's not going to cost you a fortune to do the advertising and marketing to them. Right. Valuable, does it create value for your customers, but also to you? Like, do you get something out of it? Can you make money doing this? And then durable, scalable, sellable, you know, the durable component is, Sure, you can have an ice cream shop on the corner that makes money and it's a good business. But if you're going to go national, then you're competing against Baskin Robbins and Cold Stone and Ben and Jerry's, and those guys those guys eat your lunch. So it ha- you have to be able to to be durable, um, scalable. Can you make money while you sleep? Uh, you know, can is this thing that you know, like law offices are, are horrible scalability because you have to get <laughs> more lawyers all the time to add them to the to the mix. And that That's takes right. time and it's hard. You're it's limited expensive. to your billing hours. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, is it sellable? Is it something that somebody wants to buy? And what people don't understand on that front is, especially I see this a lot because everybody wants to invest in restaurants. If someone puts a million dollars in to invest in a restaurant and it, and the restaurant's working and it's giving them, you know, a hundred grand back a year. So they're getting 10% on their money a year. Well, if they don't sell the business, they never get their money back. Right. They never get the million dollars back. They're just getting interest on the million. That's right. And so at some point in time, these things have to be sellable or the, or you can't really have investors. So <clears throat> anyway, that's the way I kind of look at, do a, a quick analysis of a business. That's great. Um, you should put that on a PDF and distribute it. <laughs> oh, I used to teach it. So yeah, there's PowerPoint. Yeah, no, no, I, no really, I would, would love to, would, would love to have it for, for the audience for sure. Uh, yeah. It, it's also, by the way, true in retail is that you open a store. And you put $100,000 in inventory, you never see that $100,000 to the day you sell the store or you close yeah, it right. and you sell the inventory yeah. through. You're always behind in, in that sense. You know? So it's very different. Yeah, plus like overall it. grocery store margins are really hard because they're like overall 1% to 2%. And so you have to make it up in volume and turns, right? So yep. you know, if, you, if you're selling a pack of gum and you're making 1% or 2%, well, you know, you double that every time you double your sales. So, you know, if you sell 10 packs, it's a 10x on your 1% to 2% return. It starts making sense, but you got to sell a lot of stuff. Now, I know, Wade, we have people out there right now who are listening to this and going, what do you mean 1% or 2%? Um, they're taking 45% on me <laughs> or, or, yeah. or, you know, whatever. But there's a yeah. lot of costs in, in running that operation and, and the margins are, are really pretty pretty slim. The, the other thing that's been fun, fun about that has been though, with the advent of uh, consumer loyalty data, um, they've, they figured out the 80-20 rule applies to them too, that 80% of their revenue comes from 20% of their customers. Sure. Yep. And the other people coming in the door are buying, you know, buying a pack of gum, they're buying, you know, coffee or whatever, they ran out of something, but they don't buy their groceries there. They buy their groceries somewhere else. Yeah, there's an interesting book called Grocery that talks a little bit about this. But if you think of the, about the model of retail, they're in an expensive piece of real estate. They've got to run it. They've got to employ all those people. So sure, they, they, have, they have to have the big margin up front because it's just an expensive business to run. And then, you know, it's one thing, our bars have a shelf life of a year, but they've got a bunch of milk and cheese and eggs and stuff that doesn't last very long that just gets, is just loss. To live with, yes. Um, yeah. And so it's just a really hard business. Um, but you know, if, if you do it well, I mean, these companies have massive amounts of revenue. Uh, they just don't make very much at the end of the day in profit. Um, now, because the numbers are so big, it makes sense. Right. Yeah. 
and it's and again, it's the idea of scale on their on their part, um, and and what you know uh, entrepreneurs many times miss is this idea that the logistics that drive the business once you get beyond taking your product to a store um, that you have to involve distributors, you may involve brokers because you can't go visit everybody. You may you know all these all these different levels that come into taking that product successful. Um, yeah, that's the rent chain, or what I call the rent chain. Everybody's taking a little piece out of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you've got you've got your brokers, you've got your distributors. Uh, we did something that was interesting. Um, we spent 2019 basically getting into distribution. You have the you have a really hard catch 22 problem here, which is the big retailers won't take you unless you're in distribution, and the distributors won't take you unless you have retail demand. Right. Yeah. And and nobody wants to be your anchor tenant. None of the retailers want to be your anchor tenant. And right. so. We spent 2018 getting into every DC of UNFI and KE and DPI so that we could sell to the retailers and, and we had enough demand with the right um, strategic customers to do that. And then we spent you know, 2020 dramatically expanding our doors. We're in all 50 states in Hong Kong now. Um, and so, but that, that's kind of the way you have to do it. You have to get into the distribution for the retailers and you, you end up with this weird thing where they're both kind of everybody's non-committal. Um, once it starts rolling, it's a different, it's a different gig, but it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, the uh, interesting was talking with someone um, earlier this week about the fact that there's signs that Amazon may in fact be looking to take distribution to Whole Foods in-house. I've heard, I've heard some rumors about this. We haven't seen, I've seen some things on pricing too, that they're going to start doing some of that stuff. Um, we're, we, sell through Amazon for sure. We've been selling there for years. Um, we sell in Whole Foods as well. Um, I, I haven't seen the crossover. Those, usually those are big strategic discussions that people are, you know, are always looking saying this is going to happen and that's going to happen. Uh, integration of two businesses almost 100% of the time does not meet uh, what is presented to the investors as far the as expectation. performance yeah. and outcome. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but, but you, you know, so they're sitting in Seattle and thinking, okay, so we're the world's largest distributor. And right. yet we're paying this other company to put food into our grocery stores. Why are we doing that? Why wouldn't we just take that over? Yeah, ourselves? You, UNFI is their big partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't know what, I mean, they haven't messed I, with it yet. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, that's I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I, I don't know either. We're going to see, um, see what happens, but uh, you need to figure that out. So when, when you went in, um, to live bar. Um, and, and you mentioned, of course, that the founders and stuff still involved in the company. What, what did you, in terms of the team and stuff and building it out, what did you felt, what did you feel you needed to make it grow? And what were the, the first hires or add-ons or agencies or whatever you brought in? Yeah. So <clears throat> like, like I said, it was a, it's a small business in Salem, Oregon that was selling to a couple regional grocery stores and on Amazon. Uh, and in part, it's just because you need to have funding resources to grow a business like this because a distribution channel is expensive. Um, and, and again, we mentioned this too, but what I see happen sometimes is, you know, you'll sell to a single store and you'll base your pricing on selling to a single store with no brokers or distributors. And if you do that and use that as your pricing, it won't work as you scale because there's not enough margin there to, to feed all the people in the rent chain. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing I did was uh, I reached out to two of my uh, awesome students who were both working at Fortune 500 companies and said, Hey, I'm starting this thing. Um, so I got uh, my director of, of 
marketing and operations, was a director of market operations at Adidas. Um, and my sales guy was one of the top sales guys of New York Life. And I brought them both in, um, gave them some, uh, you know, we did a um, stock option plan yeah. and gave them, you know, stock options on a, you know, three-year vesting schedule kind of a thing like you do. Um, and then started growing it. Now we used to have, it was crazy. We had a 700 square foot kitchen on the second floor of a building where a guy cut a hole in the floor where there was a little hand crank lift that was, you know, about the size of, you know, a 50 pound sack. Uh-huh. Crazy. Cause like we had to build pallets in the alley. The alley was always blocked. It was just a disaster. Um, and then, you know, we slowly started growing it and hiring more people. Uh, and you know, we now have our own 10,000 square foot facility, solar powered. We're one of the very few companies that manufacture our own bars. 95% of the bars are made in co-packed and big industrial food places. Yep. yep. We're SQF certified. We have a solar powered facility. Um, you know, we have the certifications, the certified organic, the SQF certifications, the kosher gluten-free certifications, all of that stuff. If you didn't know, and like, I didn't come into CPG knowing any of these things. Um, you know, it's all stuff you have to figure out. We're fortunate. I've looked at thousands of businesses, interviewed thousands of people uh, who are CEOs. We were very quick at getting up to speed on stuff. It's a problem because we move way faster than the industry moves. The industry is a pretty slow moving thing. A lot of these companies you see that are, that are uh, you know, a bar company have been around 10 years. Uh, and I'm trying to do it in, you know, three years, four years. Um, get to be a, a national brand. Um, and it's just, and so you have resistance all the way along because people are just like, oh yeah, well, yeah, we'll do that. Sure. It'll that take, you know, we do our reviews with the reviews. We do it once a year or we do it once That's every right. six months. You're like, We're not changing anything on the shelf for six months. So good luck. Right. And then, and then the other thing is, then we get into a whole bunch of places, but then they say, well, what's your velocity? And you're like, well, we just got into all of these places. We don't have velocity numbers because it's all new. Um, now, fortunately for us now, our velocity numbers are great, but that's all new, right? And also we were doing that right. over COVID. So the bar industry is down 50% nationwide. Not a great time to be in the bar business, um, but it is not a bad time uh, to be starting a bar company because you don't, you're not, like I said before, it's not like we were selling, you know, $100 million worth of bars and then have that cut back to 50 million and have to basically crush the company. Right. We were in the process of growing. So it wasn't, it's not as painful. Still yeah. slower than we I'd like, but right. You 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 plateaued in a couple of places, but you know, nothing was it wasn't like they were going to add three new, you know, three new brands to your category in the meantime, because they just delayed the category of you altogether. So yeah. And that's basically what happened. They basically said, look, bars, you know, people eat bars when they're going, they're convenience food. You're going to and from camping, to and from working out, to and from work. If you're not doing that, then people aren't buying as many bars as they would normally. And so most of the category buyers have just said, look, we're just not doing anything with that right now. Yeah. Um, we're not adding anything. Um, and, you know, we're not, in many cases, they're not subtracting either. It's just stagnant while they focus on other things. Um, that aisle might have shrunk in some places. But in general, right now, it's everything's coming back. So that's good. And that's just so, with people getting out and doing stuff. In, in, in terms of, okay, the real world experience now, wait, if sure. you... If you're teaching back in the classroom, or you're doing workshops or you're doing lecturing or whatever, how are you doing it differently than you did when it was still basically theoretical? Oh, well, so for me, yeah, I'm a, I'm a different kind of, of 
professor than other professors from an academic perspective, which is I've, I've basically been the CEO of a company since I was 19 or 20. So I've run companies my entire life. So um, the advantage that I got getting an MBA, even after I had run a bunch of companies, is an MBA gets you a lot of information about scalability, how to scale a company up, how to look at models yeah. and structures and you know do a SWOT analysis, the Porter's Vice Courses and all this other kind of stuff that's useful strategically um, and, and how to build organizations um, and, and structure them in the right way. Um, it's not the entrepreneurship that you should be learning if you go to get an MBA or even an undergrad entrepreneurship should be more practical. You should learn the models for sure, but you need to be out doing the stuff. Uh, and so one of the advantages uh, at least the feedback I got from my classes was, you know, this is real world stuff. He's teaching me real world stuff that I can go out and do that I understand that when I leave here is going to be useful, practical day-to-day stuff. Right. Um, a lot of the other classes are theoretical. Um, I see it all the time right now in marketing. Like if I had advice of marketing professors right now, it's super hard for me to find a marketeer who can do A-B testing on multiple platforms. So on Amazon stuff and Google stuff and Facebook and Instagram and measure the back end of it and manage the tools for it. That's not what they do. They want one, they all want to say, look, let's do strategy stuff and, you know, <laughs> do these ads. We're going to take this individual person and we're going to call it, you know, this is your characteristic of the person. And yeah, I'm not. So from us old school marketing guys with larger yeah. CPG experience, I can sit all day and play on Amazon where I have access to my client's brand registry data because this was all stuff we either couldn't get or couldn't afford, right? That I can get in real time, literally, okay, let's take the price down 10% and see what happens. And in two or three days, I can tell you, I can launch you know, a campaign on Facebook and I can tell you at the end of two weeks, whether or not I paid for it. That's amazing. That's so cool, right? It's yeah, just like, wow. You know? Well, you've got the, you know, the, the four P's, the five P's or the eight P's that everybody talks about now, but the biggest one and the biggest change is exactly what you're talking about, which is it used to be you do a marketing campaign. And then the only way you could tell if it was successful was do your revenues go up. Yeah. Now you can find, and, and that could have been for, you know, one of a thousand reasons, but now you can actually directly measure. And as a guy who was a professor, I'm all about the data. So every time we do something, it drives my people crazy, but I'm like, <laughs> If we're doing this ad or we're doing this thing, there, there are two measurements. One is kind of how many people saw it, which I care a lot less about. And how many people bought from it? How many people did it drive to the webpage? Right. We get all that data. That yeah. data didn't exist though. 20 years ago, you couldn't get any of that data. Nope. Yeah, it's and fascinating. No, yeah. And you say, I'm, I'm going to, you know, whatever. Um, I, I don't remember what it was, but whatever the top, you know, five TV programs are, okay, so we're going to debut this new product and we're going to put a spot on, you know, national TV, which doesn't exist anymore either. And right. we're going to wait to see if anybody comes into the dealership and buys it, you know, but now it's like, literally the, the tweaking is just, um, I have to, yeah, I have to hold myself back sometimes to because it's just, I want to just change something. And I got to ask the client, you know, uh, Hey, would you mind, you know, just doing this? Cause I'd love to see what happens. I know it's your, inventory, but you know, um, sure. it's, it's, it's too, it's too fascinating to get into. And I think that's one of the things that when, you know, talking to, uh, food beverage entrepreneurs that I try to encourage and some of them are hesitant. They do, well, I really want to be, I want to drive everything from my website. I don't really want to be on Amazon. It's like, no, 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 no. You're going, what you're going to learn from your website is going to take a long time. 
what you're going to learn from Amazon, you can learn very quickly. And you know, you can get validity for your product. Uh, I can tell you whether or not it's going to sell. Uh, I can give you information that you can take to a retail buyer and it's going to help get you in. Even if the retail buyer says, I don't pay any attention to Amazon, he or she is probably lying. But um, you know, it's, uh, it's very important because it is immediate and um, you know, you can't get every last bit of information, but you can get so much information. It's more than most people even know how to deal with. So. Yeah. There, there is a, there is another component to this though, um, at least from a bigger strategic standpoint, which is when you're talking about Amazon dollars and you're talking about direct website sales, that's not what direct, that's not the growth driver for a CPG brand. Oh, the no. growth driver is doors is being in right. retail doors and retail spaces. Yeah. So yeah. we take most of our marketing at this point in time, and we're doing some radio stuff now and some other things where we're driving people, social media stuff, we're driving people to the stores. Right. So we're in all, we're in all the Sprouts. That's 350 doors across 24 states. And we're like, look, go to the Sprouts. We want the velocity. We want them to, even though we make less money, right? Because if you buy direct, we obviously make the most money. We want people going to Sprouts and buying the product. We want people going to Whole Foods and buying the product. We want people going to Fresh Time and buying the product. Um, that, that's right. how you grow this business. Right. You're not going to build the brand you're thinking about on Amazon. It, right. it just isn't going to happen. Um, but if you, want to go re- if you want to go serious retail and you aren't on Amazon, I think it's a handicap. Oh, you definitely have to be there. It's an omni-channel. You have to be in yeah. all the channels. Yeah. Um, you have to sell direct, you have to sell there, you have to sell. And, and same thing with, with the niche stuff, like you have, you know, the channel. So our product is a, is a good fit for the natural food channel, right? Because of right. the ingredients are all real food ingredients and superfoods and organic and all that. And then you've got grocery and you have to be in that channel too, even though that's a little bit harder channel. And then you've got convenience stores and that's depends upon what kind of a convenience store it is. But then you've got, you know, all of the, the Google campus and you've got, airlines and you've got, I mean, it's just, it's, you have to do it all the way across the board. We've tried to do that faster than most. What most people do is they choose a channel and they own that channel or try to, and then they move to the next channel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Omni-channel, omni-channel strategy is, is um, well, in, in some ways more expensive, but it's also less risk. Um, you know, dumping every, you know, if you had, if you had decided, for instance, that you guys were going to own food service, um, and, and the pandemic happened, your business was gone. Um, but if you were spread out between food service and retail and DTC, you had a much better chance of surviving, um, you know, surviving the pandemic for sure. Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, it's, it's the, it's a classic model of as soon as you get a big client, you know, the, the biggest risk to your business is that client's going to leave <laughs> or they're going to get pricing power, right? Cause they know that you know, you're 80, 90% of the business, they're going to come back to you and say, Hey, I want a lower price. For, for, so the very first thing you have to do is get another big client. Yeah. For years, Wayne, I had a sign in back of my desk at the agency that said, guess who files for bankruptcy the day after your largest client? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. In that, that thing, there's also a theory that says that if a business is not growing, it's dying. So, you know, eventually, if, even if you become king of DTC, you, you know, there's still retail, there's still food service, there's still, for some people, even a private label. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're in manufacturing yeah. scale. And it's like, okay, I don't want to do this. But, you know, on the other hand, um, it, it might, it might help me out a little bit. Um, it's just like, it's just like an investment strategy, right? You can't just buy one stock. You need diversification because any right. one stock can go up and down, you know, with the wind. But if you're, 
if you're in a mutual funds or you know you're broadly distributed in your investments, something goes up, something goes down. You kind of have these offsetting things and you're trying to get a, a long-term good return. Yeah, absolutely. So wait, let me ask you on the, you mentioned 2019, um, building distribution, whatever, in 2020, you know, kind of uh, different, let's just, you know, say things ended up uh, where they did. Um, are you looking, you're looking to push large increases in 2021 or are we looking at 2022 for bigger things? Uh, no, we're pushing for, okay, so it was distribution in 2019, it was retail for 2020. So that was expanding our doors. 2021 is expanding our doors and velocity. So, right. so you end up with this thing where the, some of the really big accounts, uh, you know, the Walmarts and the Kroger's, and we've been in Walmart before in their um, incubation set, they don't have any more. Yep. Um, it, then it's, you start getting more towards numbers, right? It's more business from a business perspective. So if you go to Kroger, they're going to want to say, okay, well, we want to see your velocity data. We want to see the number of doors. We want to see your percentage of the marketplace you're in, in yep. your space uh, and, and how fast you're selling. And so you want in this year, and it's hard, but it's because it's been pandemic time. And you would think that people will be like, okay, so it's a pandemic. So those numbers don't count. That's not the case. <laughs> they're just, they're just saying, look here, you're relative to the, here you are relative to the other bars. Fortunately, our numbers are really good. So, but you, you're then, saying we need to do velocity. And so that is a lot of advertising and marketing and demos to get the velocity up because you want to take those numbers then to the Kroger's of the world and the Walmarts and say, look, here's what our, the data is. And then they'll start picking you up. Right. I, I, I use this analogy, uh, especially when you're trying to grow a business um, this big, this fast, you have five different swimming pools that are half full and you have a fire hose and you're trying to keep them all even. But every once in a while, an elephant jumps into one of the, let's say, you know, Walmart says we want you in 1500 doors. So an elephant jumps into that pool and now you have to fill up your production pool as fast as you can and your support pool as fast as you can. And so it's just, it's the process of, of doing that. We've done it in stages. Um, yeah. Right now, the one that, the, you know, it's, it's all about velocity. So it's all about getting people to try the bars. We're going to spend a lot of money on doing demos. Um, we're going to be doing a couple hundred demos a month to get people to, to get those numbers up. And then the next thing is you take those numbers to the big guys and say, here's our numbers. And then they say, okay, we're going to flip you on in these thousand doors. And then you got to build the bars. And, and dealing with the elephant in the swimming pool, that's the good news folks, by the way, that's right. if things go well. Right? So, yeah. yeah. It's champagne problems, but it's still problems. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. That's good. Uh, wait, where can people find more information about live bars? So we're on, it's livbar.com, livbar.com. We're on Amazon. Uh, we are, we got lots of stuff on our website. We're on social media on all the channels, basically. Um, so yeah, just type in livbar in any right browser and you'll get all the data. So um, one of the things we try to do to make our guests feel as uh, comfortable as possible is to um, a segment we call Words to Grow By. And uh, the basic idea is to, find a, it can be a single word or a single phrase or even a full topic if you want or whatever, that combining your academic with your practical experience, um, you want to share as advice to fellow entrepreneurs. You got something for us? Yeah. Um, it's kind of two things. I would say just off the top, people have kind of lost this anymore in the social media world, but you know, don't bury the lead. It, you know, <laughs> now everything's clickbaity and you read it. And then as you read wow. through... You're like, yeah. wow, there's nothing there, right? Yeah. Don't do that. 
Like I want to know, especially when you're talking to investors and when you're talking to people who are buyers, look, guys, they don't have any time. They just don't. Like I'm not going to look through a 30-page PowerPoint. It's not going to happen. No. So tell me the stuff right away. Give it to me up front. Um, you've got you know a couple minutes of my time. Hook me in with something that's interesting. And, uh, and that's how, and then, you know, I'm going to give you five or 10 minutes. And if it's interesting in the first five, you might get an hour or two. Um, but, but I think it's super important and people, gosh, I don't know how many people have told me, you know, I can't get this pitch deck less than 50 slides. I'm like, look, if you're not 10 slides, nobody's going to read it. Yeah. I mean, we don't, I, I, I think your life story is compelling, but. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, somebody, I think it was 500 startups said, uh, you know, everybody thinks that their that their story is a novel, but it's not. It's a knock knock joke. Knock knock. Who's their oh, traction? Oh, that's good. And that's it. That's, that's right. I I I reviewed one a few months back that was focused on regenerative agriculture, and it's like, okay, we're trying to sell products here. Okay, we're not. I I, I get the mission. It's wonderful. It's great. But we spent, you know, again, fifteen slides on the mission. And five slides on, is this a viable product? And is anybody going to care? So there's another quick one that I use all the time. What do you sell to whom to do what? Do you want your elevator pitch? That's it. What do you sell? Who do you sell it to? For what reason? To whom for what? And if you ask yeah. somebody that, you can, you can kind of figure stuff out fast. That's awesome. Okay. Good stuff. Well, hey, wait, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And uh, would uh, love to chat some more down the road. I want to see what's happening with uh, with Live Bar, and uh, you know, and, and folks get the information at the website as well as finding it in stores. Of course, it's all good stuff. So, uh, but I know I know you're busy and you got a lot of stuff going. So, uh, appreciate all the words of wisdom and a lot of stuff I've written down. And I'm going to probably ask you for later too to to share with our audience. I appreciate doing it. I appreciate you giving me the time to do it. This is uh, it's fantastic. Um, Thank you very much. It's great. And by the way, thanks to all the rest of you out there for joining us today and being part of the Next Level Brand CPG community. If you're a growing firm in food, beverage, health, or wellness, and even small goods, you should be part of the Next Level Brands community. Education, resources, workshops, founder coaching, and more. Information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's. I'm Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at Next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.